Rebecca Costa, and I'm a technology and science futurist and sociobiologist. And on today's program, we're going to be talking about the long tail repercussions of COVID-19, as well as how AI and machine learning can help us to predict when these threats are coming. Welcome back. This episode is brought to you in part by the Awesome Music Project, bringing music, story, and mental health together. All proceeds from the Awesome Music Project campaign go to music mental health research initiatives. You can find out more about the beautiful Awesome Music Project coffee table book at the usual places like Amazon or wherever you buy your books. Uh, the book features stories from amazing people like astronaut Chris Hadfield and award-winning artists like Michael Bublé and Sarah McLaughlin. I was even honored to be part of that uh project too. It's a beautiful, beautiful book. But what's more important is the project and the foundation itself is doing amazing work. You can find out more about the Awesome Music Project and the AMP Foundation by going to the awesomemusicproject.com. Again, the awesomemusicproject.com. Again, we are here with Rebecca Costa. She is a futurist. She's a best-selling author. And she has uh, wrote, written, two, written two very powerful and best-selling books. One is uh, The Watchman's Rattle, and the other one is On the Verge. And in The Watchman's Rattle, there are three predictors that she talks about, about the, the coming of change. And I want to just start there because I think that this is going to allow people to, to have a sort of objective way of looking at, well, where are we really? Can you outline them for us, Rebecca, and then we can sort of, people can get a grasp? Well, yes. First, uh, social progress begins to exponentiate. Uh, the rate of, of change in a society begins to exponentiate while um, the rate at which our brains can adapt new facilities kind of lags behind. So uh, complexity of social systems like everything from where you're going to get your food and water to tax law to uh, just general, uh, you know, trying to get anything done in, in, in your day-to-day -day lives starts to become very, very complex. When that, when the complexity exceeds what our brains are biologically designed to be able to make rational sense out of, the second phase occurs. And that second phase is that there is mass confusion between what is an empirical fact and what is an unproven belief, because the complexity is so great that people form opinions about nuclear power that have no background in nuclear physics. They form uh, opinions about the healthcare system, though they aren't trained medically. So uh, the, the third stage is that that confusion between what is an empirical fact and what is an unproven belief finds its way to the very top of leadership. And then public policy begins to be forged on unproven beliefs rather than empirically demonstrable facts. And when that happens, it's the precursor for some triggering event to cause unilateral collapse of all social institutions. By collapse, I don't mean everyone in the society dies. What I mean is, is that you'll see that the society disbands. And that has been proven to be the three precursors, if you will, 
to the collapse of the Roman society, the Khmer, the Mayans, the Egyptians, the Ming society. It is the pattern before the triggering event occurs. Now, historians have been very interested in what that triggering event is, and they've written you know, volumes about the, what caused the Roman Empire to collapse. But I would argue that that collapse was based on how the society was behaving before the triggering event occurred. So that was what interested me, and that's what I based my first book on, was how was the society in general behaving that made them susceptible and vulnerable to a cataclysmic collapse? So, so let's, let's just take the Roman Empire, because it's the one most people are more familiar with. Um, let's take the Roman Empire and look at that. Walk us through those three predictors that led to the catastrophic change. Yes, okay, so the, the, the complexity of the Roman Empire can be directly tied to the acquisition of greater and greater territories. As the Romans were conquering territories that were further away, that were different cultures with uh, you know, different mores, et cetera, different currencies, and so on and so forth, you could see that they were losing control to a certain extent of the, of, of the periphery of the empire itself right. and that Romans were that that traditional Romans the original Romans were very very confused about where their currency was coming from and how the currency was being evaluated and where the food was going and where it was coming from and and day-to-day -day life for the average Roman on the street became very very complex and so this is where many of the um, uh, facts about the conquer, conquered territories were being confused with rumor, uh, innuendo, opinions, uh, and, and uh, 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 people that were, you know, uh, basically uh, pontificating about where, what was going on uh, within the Roman Empire itself. Uh, this, this, this exchange uh, of facts for unproven beliefs and opinions is a natural evolution of uh, a natural byproduct of com growing complexity. And of course, as that happened, you began to see the leadership within Rome uh, begin to forge very bizarre policy. You know, we know that the Colosseum was created and, you know, we, it became all about entertaining people. If you entertain people, you can maintain control over the civilization. Um, uh, you know, and, and so the, the public policy itself became very, very bizarre, leading to the eventual collapse. So that, you know, again, I, I, want, I wanted you to walk through that because I think that it's, we're better actually at standing and looking at something rather than, you know, like, I have, you know, the saying goes, you can't, a fish can't describe water. And I think a lot of us in the modern world, not just Americans, but generally, we can't see where we're at because we're at that place but if we look at like the romans um the complexity of culture and currency we live in that world today there's a great complexity of of, of all these different cultures and how currency works and now we've got a new one it's called blockchain right? so we've got all that as well then we add to that facts versus opinions well you know we've got people marching on the capital on january 6 who believe it, with everything in their hearts that they're patriotic and another bunch of people who are saying you're the least patriotic so facts versus opinions and then 
Um, you know, you talked about building the Coliseum because if you can entertain people, and I talked about this in, in the late 80s and all the way through, that I see that we are, you know, it was the WWF, it was, it was uh, the World Wrestling Federation, it was uh, the, the multi-million dollar advertisements at the Super Bowl, everything is about entertainment, uh, which is a way to distract. And even in the complexity of, of uh, COVID, you know, one company that's done, I mean, there are many companies that have done very well, but one of them is Netflix because it's entertainment. We want to be entertained rather than be educated. We want to be, again, it's that back to the simple. And I just, one of the reasons that I said when reality TV started, I believe, I remember I didn't watch the entire sh show and I'm not a reality TV guy, but I watched the beginning of this show. I was watching it with my wife and I said to my wife, this is going to be huge. And she goes, what? This show? And I said, this show and this, this category, this genre. And she goes, why? And I said, reality TV is going to be massive. She said, why? I said, there's two reasons. Number one, it's easier to produce. So it's going to be easier for the creators. Number two is this. I, as in the viewer, can sit there and look at it and say, at least I'm not that. There's this lovely part of the human brain that loves to compare. And we say, well, at least I'm not as daft as those idiots. At least I'm not, you know, wealthy and throwing drinks at people like the housewives of or the hillbillies of or whatever it is. So at least I'm not that. And that level of simple entertainment by making me feel better about myself is going to be massive. We live in a reality TV world. I mean, we're all walking around doing freaking selfies. We're all doing these, you know, we're all our own media campaigns. That for me is like, we are so aligned with that fall of the Roman empire. So. Well, it's, it's very true, but I would add a, a, another thing. It is Good. perfectly normal to compare yourself. I mean, that cool. goes back to the long, you know, many millions of years of, of, uh, of evolution that uh, humankind has undergone. Uh, in a troop, we were, we were designed as troop-dwelling organisms. Uh, knowing your comparative position in the troop was very important. Of course. Uh, there was a main alpha and then sub alphas and then betas. And you needed to know where your position was because your position indicated to you what food choices you would have, what mate choices you would have within the, within the tribe. Yes. Uh, and and uh, often you would may have to resort to violence if, if somebody didn't die in order to improve your odds to get a mate or to get a food. Um, so uh, we have done lots of longitudinal studies and we've discovered that uh, uh, in spite of what uh, realtors tell you, buy the cheapest house in the best neighborhood, uh, that's a formula to make you unhappy uh, right. immediately until you sell the house and can move in because the people that are happiest are people who own homes or rent homes in neighborhoods where people have approximately the same incomes and the same types of jobs and the same level of education. 
Um, so we are always going to be comparing ourselves and you're absolutely right about reality TV. And now with uh, social media, we're constantly comparing ourselves, right? To yeah. say I'm better or worse than, better, worse, better, worse. But again, this goes back to, you have to understand how the human being is wired. You know, what is in our DNA? If we know that's in our DNA, right? Uh, then we need to limit that amount of comparing ourselves to people that are better off than us, because yeah. that can only lead to unhappiness and mental illness. Mm -hmm. It doesn't do well. And this is why in countries where there is massive income inequality, you have lower levels of self-reported happiness. Right. I'll say that again. In countries where you have a massive income inequality, people are less happy in general. The wealthy and the, uh, yes, the not both. wealthy are less happy in those countries. And that is because we now are comparing ourselves to something we can never achieve, we can never get to, but right? And this is an argument that that's where we are? For, this is an argument for closing that income inequality. It's a mental health issue. Exactly. It's not an economic issue. Yeah. The wealth gap is a, a mental health issue, not an economic issue. I couldn't agree more. It's where we started out in part one. And I, I, but the, the issue is that we're, for me, I, I'm, I'm asking you, if that's clear, why are we still ignoring it? Why are we still we not? It because we've become an economic society. Right. We, we look at everything in terms of return on investment. Yeah. Uh, when I was younger, my parents never used the terms, we're gonna invest in your education. They, they just wanted me to get an education because being a smart, intelligent, rational person was better than being a Dumbo. <laughs> that, that, that was why. It, yeah. They weren't thinking about because then you'll be able to get a really good job and you'll be able to get a lot of money and you'll be able to buy a house and have health care and live in a really nice neighborhood and meet an, an equally educated wealthy boy and send your kids to a really good school. They, they weren't even thinking about that. They just wanted their children to have an education. But now that ROI language has really crept into everything. Yes. Everything is a return on investment right? Investing my time, yeah. investing in education. We, we think of everything as, as some investment that has to have a payout at the back end and the payout has to be measurable. Uh, and, and so this is, a, this is a real mentality that has crept in and it's causing all kinds of problems because now it's, there are some things that can't be measured using traditional economic models like healthcare. We're right. having a hell of a time with healthcare. Should mm -hmm. it be for profit? Well, not much profit, maybe a little bit, but you better not be making a lot of money. Otherwise you're being predatory, but you can't be for non, you can't be non-profit. That means anybody can walk in and get healthcare. So we're, we're, we're we just keep, we, we keep trying to shove things like education, healthcare, things like that into some economic model. 
it's it's very very difficult we need other models for measuring the efficacy of certain things that are independent of economic models but if you look at who the administrators are of large hospitals if you look at who is at making the decisions about education they're looking at the numbers of course and, and they're pushed around the numbers so I agree with you one million percent. Oh no, that's not a ridiculous—that's a ridiculous statement. But I fully agree with you. But again, from your work, how do we get people to look at, or what do we get people to look at, as opposed to the ROI at an economic level, because they're looking at the numbers, and to say, how do we get them to wake up? Because you know, the pro the fall of the mental health system. Uh, in my opinion, was an economic fall. It was because everybody said, well, you know, we can't afford to keep taking care of people uh, who were in mental health facilities. So we're going to release them onto the street. And, you know, like that for me is mind-blowingly crazy, right? Um, for me. But economically, I understand it, the economics of it, but what it's got nothing to do with economics. So in your research and what you're doing, how do you how do you get people to look at another or other models than just an economic model? Is that can we do that now? Yes, because I think what's happening is there's a whole generation, thankfully, behind you and I, mm -hmm. who have who have expanded that model and who are basically saying we want the triple net, right? Yeah. You probably heard a lot about this, where we're saying yes, it has to make economic sense but it has to be good for the community and it has to be good for the planet and all the residents on the planet. Yes. So we, we want to expand that yes. as opposed to narrow casting and saying, it's just a financial decision, right? We, we want to be able to say it's a financial decision, it's a community decision and it's an environmental decision because you know, we're not the only people uh, inhabiting the planet. So uh, from that standpoint, there's a generation that is growing up, not just looking at the economics. Right now, they're not in power, right? But mm -hmm. there's, they're, they're gonna creep in there and yeah. they're going to demand, they're going to demand that the metrics which just to move forward or not do something, whether to, you know, go this way or go that way, is going to be vastly expanded. But again, that's adding complexity. Getting back to what we were talking about, yes. it's a lot easier to just look at the spreadsheet sure. and the numbers and go yes or no. Now we have to think of what's best for the community and what's best for the planet. And that is a much more complicated decision uh, matrix, if you will. Yeah, and I'm a big advocate for what I call um compassionate and it's also called conscious capitalism <clears throat> because part of the measurement is the humanity of something what is the humanity of this thing um uh, from the basic understanding of that human beings need community we need to belong and that we need to take care of each other that's part of also part of our dna as well as the predatory side of us so you know the, the question to me is you know people will say things like well, this is just our nature. And I'll say, hold on a second. It's our nature to kill each other. It's our nature to, I agree. It's our nature to uh, want to have sex with everything that passes by. Sure, I agree. Is that your higher evolution? 
do you have a brain that can operate beyond that basic? The answer is yes. It may be intrinsic. It may be at the base level, but you can choose to be at another place. You can choose to step beyond that. And, and this idea of, well, I'm just going to get more than them and consume the other people. You know, you've really fallen back into caveman mentality rather than evolving oneself. But again, with that comes the complexity of thought, with that comes the complexity of rationale, the complexity of humanities that is a bigger picture. And again, we come back to this piece, which is comparison. And this is where I want to tie it to, which is this question of these movements we're seeing, which I think start off with very good intent, but become uh, co-opted and corrupted by something else. Like, for instance, let's look at the woke movement, right? I I'm sure you're familiar with that because you live in you live in <laughs> you live in, in in a state that is all about the woke movement. So, talk to us a little bit about how you see that. It, it, you know, is it part of those three? Do you see the woke movement as part of the three predictors or is it something else? Uh, I, I really think that um, uh, the woke movement and, and many of the other movements are kind of a, a, a way to, um, uh, I don't know, pride ourselves in being uh, morally correct in some way. Mm -hmm. You know, they're, they're like a badge that we want to yeah. wear and say, I'm morally correct, and all those other people that have not joined me are not. Yeah. But it's but it's very much like the people that stormed the Capitol, the QAnon believers. Yeah. You know, I'm patriotic and the rest of you are not. It's Absolutely. it's a form of tribal identification that has taken over what should be a rational. And, uh, uh, and worthwhile discussion. I find that we go from zero to 100 overnight. Uh, you're in or you're out. And if you're out, you're a terrible person. <laughs> um, and uh, and, and I, I, I'm mystified by that, mm -hmm. right? Uh, because I don't think, again, I, I'm a scientist. I live with a lot of ambivalence. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is the name that is humans H humans are complex you know they tell a uh, an off-color joke but they're not a bad person you know they had a misstep or they tweeted something when they were 12 years old because uh, when you're 12 you're an idiot you know and you're not thinking about life insurance and you're not thinking about oh this might come back and cause me to lose my job you know 20 years from now um, you know, there, there's, there's a lot of sort of uh, histrionics that, that tends to go on. And I think that it's robbing us a little bit of some of the uh, fun of just being a human. The awkwardness, the fallibility of being a human. I want to tell you a story. I'll, I'll be crucified for this, I'm sure, but I'm going to tell you a story. I'll be brave. And um, uh, about my corporate attorney. He was my corporate attorney for 25 years. And when I first met him, uh, I was in a hurry. Uh, he was transitioning from my previous attorney to him. And, uh, uh, and he said, you know, where can you meet me? And I said, I can meet you in the lobby of the Fairmont Hotel 
uh, they have cocktails there. I'll meet you there shortly. We'll introduce each other. And he says, okay, that's fine. So we met, we sat down, we had a couple of drinks. We got along great. Instantly, I knew he would be a tremendous attorney and everything. And I said, well, I've really enjoyed this. Uh, it's been so much fun meeting you. And I know that you're going to do a great job for us. And he said, he said, oh, so you like me? And I said, very much, yes. And, and he said, well, you know, this is a hotel and they do have rooms. And uh, okay. And I, and, I, and I laughed and I said, that's your best? That's your best line? And, and, and he goes, well, yeah. And then I said, well, you'll have to work on that. And I, of course, went home. We have had a, we have had a wor strictly working relationship for 20 years. And it's a flirtatious working relationship where we're constantly doing innuendos if we're at a hotel bar or something. Sure. And, and nothing will ever come of it. We both know nothing will ever come of it. It was, it's just the way that we interact with one another. I was talking to him last week, last week. And I said, hey, do you remember how we met? And he said, no, I don't, I don't remember. You know, sorry, yep. guys don't always remember how you met or where you were when you had your first <laughs> kiss and so on and so forth. And, and I said, well, I'll remind you. And I reminded him of the story. And I said, and I remember exactly what you said. And he started laughing. And he said to me, I would never do that today. No. He said, but that day, I knew you were funny. I knew that you weren't going to, you know, take offense to it. You were mature. I knew you knew I was just being a goofball and you were going to serve it right back to me. And he goes, and for 20 years, you've been serving it right back to me, but I would never do that today. And I said, you know what? That makes me kind of sad. It does because there's a kind of casual joking. This is going to go back to the governor of New York right now. Yep. Now, was he a goofball? Did he do all those things? I believe the women that he did those things. I really do. I believe them. But I don't believe he had any intent. That's, you know, you brought up something that I am ferocious about, which is intent. And I think that with the woke movement, we have lost the context. We've lost context because of intent. We don't look at intent. We're reading everything as if it's a tweet and not really saying, well, what is the intention here? What is the, so, you know, I've talked about this on the show um, with people who are black and, and other colors. And I've said, you know, where I grew up, I grew up in the poorest of poor neighborhoods, which meant it was full of immigrants, you know? And, and I was the tight ass Jew. Not because I was a tight ass, but because I was Jewish. Therefore, I was automatically tight ass. And my brown friends were Pakis, you know, even if they weren't from Pakistan, <laughs> you know, and my, my Chinese friends were chinks and all the, all the names you can't say. And none of us were, none of us were offended because there was no intent. It was, it was no malevolence in it. No one meant it maliciously. Exactly. Right. And, and, and we've now it. so overreacted. We're so sensitive to everything that you, that, you know, that's a, that's such a small box to operate in. Well, and, we've, and we've lost, I, we've lost I, each frankly, other's I'm glad goal. I'm my age. 
I'm glad I'm my age because it wouldn't be fun to be working anywhere anymore. I'm not trying to excuse the real offenders like the Harvey Weinsteins of the world. By no means am I excusing those guys, but you've got to create some allowance. We've become so intolerant, so intolerant. Oh, you said that and looked at me funny and it made me feel uncomfortable. Well, you know what? I'm sorry. There were lots of times I, you know, I'm in my sixties right now. And I will tell you, there were a lot of times I felt uncomfortable in the boardrooms. You know, I was always the only woman in there and you know what? I got over it. I didn't let feeling uncomfortable get in the way of me getting what I wanted to get done done. But when we talk about evolution, uh, psychological, emotional, as well as biological um, evolution, that requires, has always required resilience. And it seems to me like a lot of this mentality, because, um, you know, it, it's, it's as strong on the left as it is on the right. And it's, you know, yeah. it's not one is better than the other, but it seems to me to be breaking down the resilience and and I see it psychologically as a pattern. And the pattern is this. Um, if we're all victims, so we're victims of the cancel, of the, the, the cancel culture, and we can't say what we want to say anymore. And on the other side, it's like we're victims of these male predators or these people who are who, who are picking on people of color. And that victim mentality psychologically feeds into we need a hero. So if we're all feeling like victims of something, we need a hero. Well, okay. Well, who's going to be the hero for for the against the council council culture? Let's pick Donald Trump because he's he doesn't say the right things. Okay, and now the other side's in. So we've set up a victim hero mentality that's cycling through that doesn't actually build any resilience inside each of us. And I am firmly believe, and I've made this statement many times, that the most powerful, strongest people I know, we're actually back to where we went in part one, are the people who firmly stand in the middle, who can own and be comfortable with the ambivalence of polar opposite ideas. That's the premise of this show. Curiosity Bites is for people, for you to listen to people you might disagree with and learn something because every other platform seems to not do that. So let's stand in the middle and say, okay, I can have a conversation with a neo-Nazi. Absolutely. Can I have a conversation with, with somebody who's deeply religious? Absolutely. Can I have a conversation with an atheist? Absolutely. Can I find common ground in all of those places? I can. That's because that's what it takes to be a resilient human being. And I think that all this is turning us into a bunch of softies who actually don't know how to be with each other. And that's we the comparison piece. That, that is true. We don't know how to be with each other. And we don't know, you know, there's a difference between behavior. It's back to the intent thing. There's a difference between behavior that's malicious and, and, and harmful to you. And there's different, you know, and there's a difference between behavior that's just awkward human behavior. I, I, you know, I, we're blowing up uh, on this whole governor of New York, should he step down, you know, situation right now. And, and I can understand the standpoint of the young women who have come forward, that they did feel uncomfortable. I acknowledge that they did, you know, but I come from an Italian family. 
<laughs> we hug and we pinch your cheek and and you know and and I'm sure uh, maybe I made people feel uncomfortable. You know, I'm aware of it now. I I would be you know more careful uh, to make a better discernment as to whether somebody would want a hug or wouldn't want a hug. But I gotta tell you. The first 40 years or 50 years of my life, it never occurred to me somebody wouldn't want me to hug them. You know, that's how, so given his Italian heritage and, and given the fact that he's an awkward guy, <laughs> can we attribute some things to just, he was awkward? Uh, yeah. I mean, is that okay? Yeah. It's, to be it's, awkward it's, anymore without yeah. being labeled as a predator, you know? Well, I, I think that all of us, all of us, and certainly when you get to, he may so, have to register as a sex offender. Yeah, I, I think that all of us, particularly um, in, who are of a certain age, I think if you go back into my history, it would be easy to see certain things as predatorial that were never that, that were never that intentional. Because I kiss, you know, so for instance, I kiss all my male friends, my close male friends, on the lips. I'm European, right? Uh, my female friends, I kiss them on the lips. I'm European. Uh, my, do you my, do that now? My close ones, yes. But they're is, not new is friends. There a, is there a hesitancy in you? Is there sort of a, a, a jog that you have to do in your head before you do it now? Not with those friends, because I've been friends with them for a long time, before the woke movement. But with but any new ones. Yeah, but I new ones I don't do it right. Um, uh, I and I will say I'm a hugger. Would you like a hug? And I still, you know, even with newer people, uh, and I do hug them. But my close female friends, I grab their ass. They grab my ass, right? <laughs> it's, and it's not sexual. It's it's your lawyer saying they have rooms here. It's yeah. the same thing. It's like, it doesn't mean anything. It's us being playful, uh, and and we can be playful, you know. And we can say sexual innuendo and it doesn't mean I, anything. I think that takes a certain maturity. It takes That's a certain the point. maturity to, to have that discernment and to know who you can joke with, who you can't, who might be offended and who might not be offended. And I see that with younger people, they seem to get offended over many things that to me, you know, it's, it's a little too much. It's a little too much. And, and I think you do have to uh, build in some resiliency and say, you know, it takes maturity to know what things to slide, what things to bet back, and what things to actually uh, be upset about, and, yeah. and, and, and then maybe how to deal with it. Everything doesn't need a public platform. You know, many That's times true. you're going to be much more successful pulling someone aside there were times in my career where I had to pull someone aside and say, you know, that wasn't really the right way to handle that with me. Um, and, uh, and I just needed to let you know, you know, I think you stepped over a line and the line's not always clear. So I just wanted to share that with you personally. And 99.9% .9 of the time, what I got back was, Oh, I, I, I didn't realize I, I, I was just, you know, I, I wasn't even thinking about that. And I, and I said that that's fine, but I want to just make you aware. Right. A one-on-one yeah, -on -one conversation. 
You yeah, don't need often, an audience for everything. No, most often a mature person will thank you for that. But again, that, you know, I, I, we talk a lot about emotional intelligence in the last 20 years, but we talk very little about emotional maturity. Emotional maturity is vastly different. And that's, that's the willingness to say, to have some resilience, to, to be willing to say, well, what, what was the intent? Or even to ask, what was your intent there, mate? Why, why was that? You know, and the person says, oh, you know, yeah, I realize I came across shitty. I'm just in a really bad mood. This got, went on or that went on. And I'm really sorry. And I won't do that again. Okay. No problem. Done. <laughs> As Done. opposed to, let's put so it on Twitter. So easily handled. And so easily 10,000 people. And you have what? to wonder what is happening in society that everything has to have a match lit to it. Like, why does everything have to be something really explosive or it doesn't matter? You know, if, if Andrew Cuomo has to register as a sex offender, then what does that say about rapists and child molesters that are, I mean, it dilutes the, oh, so it dilutes say, the meaning of it. That's what I was just going to say. The problem with all of this mass labeling is it dilutes that which is really important it vastly dilutes all of that so you know somebody is genuinely a pedophile or genuinely a rapist or one of those things and then suddenly you've got somebody who made some some off-color comments is also a sex offender i mean the level you know one of the i think that psychologically one of the great damaging things of our society we know this is research is shame Healthy shame is different than shaming, right? And when we shame people um, without, without consideration, we damage our society vastly. And we're doing, that's what I'm seeing a lot of happening with the woke movement uh, and with the cancel culture and with the other side. It's, it's craziness. We're coming to the end of this section and I want to uh, put forward because I know that where I want to go to in this is you have done a lot of work with understanding predictive and analytics and AI and really technologically creating these psychic predictors of, of where we're going. What well, appears to be, it's not a, a psychic, but it appears to be psychic. So in the next section, I want to talk about that and what that means to us in where we're going um, as a society and how that is likely to impact us over time because it is in incredibly complex and yet incredibly simple. Um, and maybe it becomes so simple that we stop thinking and so complex that we don't even try to understand it. So we'll be back for part four of our fascinating conversation with the brilliant Rebecca Costa, who is the author of The Watchman's Rattle and On the Verge, both best-selling books. I highly recommend that you get them, and we will be back in one click. So stay curious, my friends. Stay curious.